Welcome to Watch This Space, the podcast about future of work. Every month, we bring you insider perspectives on how digital transformation, emerging technologies, and generational change are shaping the future of work. We are two analog guys finding the groove for all of this in today's digital world. I'm John Arnold, and these are my focus areas as an independent technology analyst in my company, J. Arnold & Associates. Hi, I'm Chris Fine, and I'm an independent consultant and advisor also focusing on enterprise technology, IoT, security, and the future of work. My company is Integrative Technologies. Hey, John, good to join you again. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, same here, Chris, as always. And uh, it's, it's spring. We're a month into the baseball season. I'd love to talk about my Red Sox, but, you know, we got other things. Bigger fish to fry today, right? Exactly. Or we would think so anyway, although it's great to see the baseball season actually resuming, right? It's great to see things opening up a little bit. For sure. Yeah. Signs of life, way more so in the U.S. than in Canada, I'm afraid to say. But I think we are, um, everyone wants some return to normalcy. And yes, it's healthy to see it happening in sports and with mask restrictions coming off a bit. And, you know, that is going to bubble down to, um, the workplace for sure. It'll be interesting to see how the summer unfolds. And uh, we'll take a bit of a break though this week, I I think, or this month, I should say. We've done a lot on hybrid work lately, but I think the next time we come back to that topic, Chris, there'll be a lot more proof points about how companies are handling this return to office and hybrid workplace, uh, you know, scenario that they're trying to uh, embed. I think in terms of timeframe, at least in the U.S., it, it looks like it's somewhere in between July and September where a lot of offices are at least scheduled to open. So we should have some real good data points in starting next month. But there certainly is a lot of confusion right now as to exactly what people on both the employer side and the employee and visitor side are really going to want to do. How much of a back to where we were is it really going to be? So It'll be interesting to watch it for a month or two and see what happens. And certainly if we see any major developments, we'll comment on them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it to me is waiting for a shoe to drop. You know, the big companies in our world, you know, industry events and conferences are a big deal and business travel in general. But a lot of big companies still have restrictions on having employees travel and that kind of the dominoes fall from that, right? About uh, where they, you know, what, how events can be be run until those people can come back. And uh, I'm my indications are that for the fall, like September on, I think there's a lot more confidence in events being planned. That's certainly when I'm seeing the scheduled events starting up again. There are some happening now, but I think it's a little, to me, it's a little early and a lot of people are still not allowed to travel um, so the, you know, virtual events are still the norm for now, but I, that's, it will be interesting to see after the summer, how thing if people really want to get back to getting out there. I think it's going to be interesting because I, I see a real difference between if the way event planners are thinking and the way companies are thinking. And what I mean by that is I think the event planners are super optimistic that because they are going to be able to throw the events to plan them, to schedule them, that people are going to run back to the way things used to be, that they're going to be so happy to do things in person that they're going to be able to flip the switch back on 
you know, with no ramp up. Whereas I think the office type employers are very much more cautious in terms of betting on what they think is going to happen. And so it's going to be interesting to see who proves, you know, or something in the middle or what, what side proves to be accurate. Because for every voice you hear that says, you know, oh, workers are going to be uh, great to get back to the office and all the companies like the banks that are basically saying, you need to come back to the office. There's a bunch of polling on the other side that says people don't want to come back to the grind and the commuting. And, you know, the nature of work has to change. So let's, uh, this is definitely a watch this space. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the longer these new habits persist, the harder it's going to be to change them. If people are comfortable working from home, that they've adjusted their lifestyle to reflect that. It's going to take a lot to get them to go back. Uh, you've got to basically make the workplace environment, aside from just being super safe, it's got to be better. It's got to be a better work environment experience than what they can get at home. Because if it can't match it, you know, it's a little bit like the movies, right? I mean, if you've got a home theater, surround sound, you know, you've built a big bunker in your basement that is just oh, a, a little bit shy of being a full-size movie theater. What is the incentive to go out to a theater, right? I mean, if the experience at home is better, you're not going to go. And I think it's going to be the same thing at the workplace. They've got to gamify it. They've got to do goodies and treats and lots of things to make it a better experience. Aside from the toys, the tech toys, which, you know, are very central to that as well. I don't know. If I were to think about this, I think there's going to start to become a middle layer where it's somewhere in between the office and the home. And it, but it's a place where you can go locally to the home. So for example, it would not surprise me at all to see some, a company like Starbucks make a strategic move and say, we're going to basically either buy up or start expanding our real estate so that we can essentially be in the co-working business, mm-hmm. you know, take our, take our traditional, we sit at the coffee shop with laptops crowd and make it better for them. Mm-hmm. And if you see what's happening, even though they've been up and up and down a little bit financially, the new incarnation of WeWork is something to watch because under the new leadership, they're basically taking a bet that there is going to be this middle layer. And it's interesting also, at least in the U.S., if you talk to companies like, um, you know, Toll Brothers and others that are building housing for sort of office worker type people, which again, we always reiterate is far from the full populace. They're building complexes with with spaces where people can work and they don't have to be in their homes. So they get a chance to get out and have a nice place to go, but not have to get on a train or drive to an, you know, a traditional kind of office. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think this middle layer of local neighborhood type of places is going to give office space a run for its money, particularly in metro areas where the transportation infrastructure is crumbling and underinvested and where the traffic, everybody remembers the traffic and how bad it was. And you didn't have to deal with that for over a year. And so let's just wait and see. I don't think it's going to be a one or the other, let's say. It's going to be an interesting evolution. For sure. So while we are tackling the big problems of the world, I think we can do it. 
you know, let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit to a story you've been talking about, Chris, which is also a big story about what are the best models for big tech to have in terms of their place in the ecosystem. And you're talking about uh, this AT&T divestiture, right? Time Warner. It speaks to so many layers about how the economy is, what drives the economy these days. It's the latest chapter in a saga that's been really playing out for a long time. Um, so I suspect if anybody listens to podcasts, they probably listen to like 10 of them already on this. But essentially, AT&T announced that they're spinning off or spinning out their Time Warner content operation that they had fought so hard just a couple of years ago to get approved. And if you remember, that was fought uh, for various reasons in the antitrust, and then they finally got approval to do it, and they did it, and now they're unwinding it to invest in a new entity that's a combination of Time Warner and Discover Networks. And so the interesting question that this brings up, along with the recent Verizon divestiture of the the content properties that it bought, namely the remnants of AOL and Yahoo a few years ago, is can you really be, I mean, when is, what is it going to take to prove uh, that you can't or shouldn't be in the content and transportation slash infrastructure business? It, is it just going to keep on being mistakes like this? It, it just seems to be that with very few exceptions, those are two incompatible businesses, don't you think? Well, yeah. I mean, it, it, I guess it comes from the legacy model of when you own the infrastructure, that's where the value of that's where the value was, right? That was the asset of having the network, and the content was almost secondary. I mean, you know, the early days of, of television were, you know, they, the, the 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 money was in the net. It's always been in the network, but the 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 content now seems to be everything and but it's been this way for a long time and that's why those companies got together in the first place but there's that fundamental issue of well if i control the content i can maximize my return on that content but only in my network so if i'm a content producer do i want to restrict my opportunities by going with by being part of a controlled network as opposed to being out there available to any and every network that wants to pick up your stuff. I mean, these are the fundamentals of the whole industry. And it's, it's similar, you know, the, 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 the way the advertising industry has always been structured around mass entertainment, you know, using, you know, the Nielsen and all these rating services that were based on behaviors of how people watched and consumed content. And they're so out of line. You know, they've obviously evolved to how it is today. But when you, you know, when you base your advertising rates and, and the whole industry around that on assumptions about how people are consuming media, you know, they're pretty, they've always been, you know, it's, it's a pretty slippery slope of, of truth to what those assumptions really mean. But that's what the industry has been based on. And today everything is, you know, once you get two-way, you know, IPTV, when you have lots of information about the viewer, you're no longer guessing you know what their patterns are. And that changes the whole structure of the relationship between the viewer and the products that they're trying to be pitched to. And the internet model has evolved to be a far more efficient way of doing it. It's not a very good experience, but in terms of efficiency, it's pretty, it's pretty dif- very different model than mass media market has been. I'm 
diverging a little bit here, Chris, but I think that idea of the content and the and the network, I do agree with you. I've always felt they should be separate. I, I have always felt so too. I have always felt that there's profit to be made in being a good network and being um, a real a, a top-notch infrastructure supplier that's more reliable, more broad, more available. And I think 5G is going to you know, it's not the panacea, perhaps, that many say, but that, combined with other newer stuff, continues to make the networks more valuable the more they reach out. And so there is, you know, it's possible by by adjusting your cost structure and all a lot of other things that the big carriers have done over the years to be in that business and be, have it be a good business and make your shareholders who tend to be, you know, steadiness and dividend focused happy. And I also think that nowadays in the media business or the content business, you're competing against the likes of Amazon, who has more capital than you do to deploy at the problem. And and Netflix, uh, who've proven to be extremely adept at the modern media scene and anything, everything, and Disney, uh, who's been ingenious at this. So you're not even, it's not even phone companies versus cable companies anymore. It's, it's, it's you infrastructure provider, whether you are phone or cable versus players who are highly optimized for an extremely wealthy and highly optimized toward really the direction where content seems to be going. And can you, would, can you, or would you, want to compete with that versus being part of the picture of enabling that success, you know? And it's also, again, the value of the network was built at a time when people didn't have alternatives. So the networks had inherent value because of the cost to build the physical infrastructure, which was also a high cost of entry or barrier to entry for competitive players to come in. And so before the internet, consumers didn't really have choice, which again, allowed advertisers to set their rates because they had a relatively captive audience. So even if those assumptions about viewing habits weren't that accurate, they were good enough to create a set a value, a table of value that they could charge for advertising, which allow the networks to make money. And, but as soon as the internet comes in, you have two-way TV and all these other things, consumers have other choices beyond what those networks offer now that infrastructure doesn't and that whole model it's built on becomes less valuable because people have other ways to access content that's very good that's not dependent on that kind of semi-closed you know environment where the networks are controlled by a handful of companies and now we can consume content anywhere anytime it's been similar in canada chris in, in our own little parochial way you know hockey is the big thing in canada and a few years ago, the Rogers and Bell had they made these exclusive tie-up deals with the NHL to kind of centralize all of the content of games from one provider, and that was a very big risk that Rogers took to invest in, saying we're going to control all the hockey. That's great if everybody's watching it, but you know, guess what happens, guys? When all the Canadian teams get knocked out of the playoffs early, nobody wants to watch that deal all of a sudden doesn't look so good because now less people are watching. It's great when Canadian teams are in it and we're all glued to our TV sets. But as soon as June comes around and the playoffs, we, we, we want to watch baseball and play golf. All of a sudden, hockey's not that interesting. It becomes a riskier deal. So there's a lot of risk to having that 
network provider control the content as well, right? Well, yeah, and it's also potentially, you know, always decreasing business rationale for doing it. So I would make one more point, and then I think we probably have to close it for this month. But we made this point when we taught this little communications course we did last uh, last month about voice. You know, a lot of people think that when the phone companies, which are really the ancestors and still still a lot of residual thinking in the service provider business, when they built the networks, the networks were always in subjugated to the goal of providing the service, right? So the bell system in, in the U.S. was about phone calls, not about inventing the transistor. And mm-hmm. so even though ultimately where they ended up with a lot of value was all the science that they invented and engineering to deliver phone calls. And, you know, they were restricted by monopoly for so many decades from diversifying into so many other areas that they had expertise in. They had to, they got all the consent decrees. They had to divest so much stuff that they really stayed to that. So once the world switched to IP, which disrupts everything, as we know, makes, you know, changes, moves the wealth from point A to point B. Once that happened and they were they they became the post breakup AT&T and uh, equivalent in Canada and everywhere else post PTT you know they still had that mentality of our whole network is really in the service of providing services defined at an application level because a phone call is basically an application right and mm-hmm. that metamorphosed into a long running sticky tendency to want to own content because you couldn't accept the fact that you're basically built this fabulous infrastructure. You, you don't want to view it as dumb pipes. And that has taken now full circle 20, 30 years to start getting chopped away. But it's going to be interesting where it goes. Very well, Chris. Sure will. And you're right. We are on time. So we got to wrap up for today. But I hope there's some good food for thought out there. And you know, we'll see how this divestiture thing plays out, Chris. Maybe worth revisiting uh, next uh, couple of months, huh? Yeah, we. I know we had a bit of a mixed bag this month, but uh, hope all our loyal listeners don't mind us talking about a few different topics, and we'll probably get back into more of our focused groove next month. Right, Sean? For sure. And for what it's worth, no, we are not wearing masks right now. But, but hey. we're also each in our own little bubble. Yeah, we're <laughs> sequestered away here. Right. Okay. <laughs> On that note, we will wrap. So that brings us to the end of our time today. So look, we will thank you for listening as always. We hope you enjoyed our podcast and that you'll continue as we explore the future of work here on Watch This Space. You can access all of our episodes at www.watchthisspace.tech or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. And if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review or rating. We'd love it. And finally, uh, I can provide, if you're interested, uh, real-time transcripts of our podcast, and you can find those on my J. Arnold & Associates website. But for now, it's time to go. So I'm John Arnold. And I'm Chris Fine. Thanks very much for listening. John, thanks. Always great to be with you again, and we'll see you next month. Over and out. Same here, Chris. Okay, all. Take care for now.